heroin is a drug with many names. Being the illicit form of diamorphine, it rose in popularity in the 1980s. But despite the number of heroin addicts falling in the UK, death as a result of heroin abuse remains high. Whilst most members of the emergency services will be familiar with what heroin overdose looks like and that you should give naloxone as an antidote, some of the more nuanced aspects of care for these patients can cause debate amongst staff. This month we're dealing with heroin. We'll look at its pharmacodynamics, where we should start our management and what our endpoint is with naloxone, as well as how we can deal with situations of patients not wanting to go to hospital. So if when it comes to managing heroin overdose, you feel like you nah can't, by the end of this episode, you'll feel like you nah can. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh. I'm Simon. And I'm Alex. And this month we are talking about heroin overdose. This is not a particularly uncommon incident to go to. It's certainly something that the majority of paramedics uh, will have seen and, and the majority of students will see before their training is up. And it's an area that has some varying opinions, some varying approaches to exactly how we would manage these patients. And so we wanted to take a look at what some of the evidence and guidelines suggest and explore these a little bit further. Excellent. So let's get started. And as always, a really good place to start is with the epidemiology. So the total cost of the illicit drugs trade in the UK is estimated to be around £19 billion a year. And 86% of those costs to the individual and to society are concentrated in the heroin and crack cocaine markets. So the heroin market is very well established. It began rapidly expanding in the 80s and 90s. However, the number of heroin users have decreased steadily over time. So from a numbers perspective, heroin is actually not among the most popular recreational drugs used in the UK. The top place goes to uh, cannabis, as many people might imagine, followed by cocaine, MDMA, and even ketamine and amphetamine abuse have a higher prevalence than heroin does. So exactly how common is it? Well, that is quite difficult to track and ascertain. Uh, some some government documents estimate that there's around 260,000 users in the UK. And that's backed up by some 2019 data that suggested that around 0.1% of adults between the ages of 16 and 59 had used heroin in the previous 12 months when they were surveyed. Rates of heroin use are generally in decline. The rates of heroin use among young substance misusers are very low. And so when we're looking at the heroin population, these documents are often describing them as entrenched users, which is pretty much what we already know and understand about the heroin population. Whereas other drugs, people tend to dip in and out of them normally when they're younger. Heroin users are generally regular and long-term users who, as they get older, develop increasingly severe and costly health problems. Drug-related deaths where heroin is involved are continuing to rise, and this is potentially indicative of the rising age of of heroin users. Uh, And as they get older, they become more susceptible to fatal overdose due to the comorbidities they develop from chronic heroin usage. So to put some numbers into perspective of the uh, just over 3,000 drug-related deaths that were recorded in 2021 that were identified as drugs misuse, Heroin or morphine was involved in just over one third of those cases. And in previous years, that proportion has been higher still. So 2018 numbers, opiates were mentioned in 80% of drug related deaths, with heroin being responsible for over half of those deaths. So I guess to just summarise all of that, whilst the numbers of heroin use are actually quite low compared to other drugs that are misused by uh, substance abusers, the likelihood of us coming across a medical complaint linked to that abuse is relatively high. So with that in mind then, Alex, do you want to talk to us about exactly what heroin is? 
Yeah, I certainly can. Um, I think that in general terms, a lot of paramedic programs, probably due to uh, time constraints and, and, and simply the amount of information that has to be taught, we don't get a huge amount of clarification on really what the difference between different types of drugs are. So morphine is probably the first opiate that we think of, and it is the most widely known extract of Papaver somniferum, which is the, the opiate poppy. But actually, four naturally occurring alkaloids, which are plant-derived uh, amines, can be isolated from that plant. Those are morphine, codeine, papaverine, and thebane. And some simple chemical manipulations of these basic opiate alkaloids can yield a different range of semi-synthetic opioids, which are useful in clinical medicine. And we get agents such as diamorphine, dihydrocodine, buprenorphine, oxycodone, and actually naloxone. But heroin itself is essentially just a name for illicit diamorphine hydrochloride. Now, diamorphine is actually a shortening. It's the diacetyl derivative of morphine. And acetylation is a chemical reaction which introduces an acetyl group into a chemical compound using acetic acid. And why is that important? Well, acylated organic molecules have an increased permeability across the blood-brain barrier, which is why this is important. That increased permeability makes the drug's effect more intense and it increases the effectiveness and the impact of any given dose. And for this reason, heroin is five to ten times more potent than morphine. Now, the chemical and physical appearance of heroin varies depending on where it was made and how it was synthesized. Pure heroin itself is a fine white powder, whereas illicit heroin. So when I say pure heroin, what I'm talking about is is most likely medicinal use uh, diamorphine. That will be a fine white powder, whereas most forms of illicit heroin will vary in appearance from a, from a vaguely white to a brown or dark brown powder. And a very crudely processed heroin, which is known as black tar, is dark brown to black, hence the name. The quantity and the purity of, of heroin produced during illegal manufacture is a function of the alkaloidal strength of the raw opium, the procedures used to extract the morphine, and the techniques used during acetylation and the purification process. Prior to distribution, illegal or illicit heroin is usually mixed with bulk dilutants such as quinine, mannitol, dextrose, lactose, baking soda. I've even heard of things like brick dust being cut into heroin uh, simply to make the, the bulk volume greater, which means that the people who are selling it can, uh, can make more money for selling less of the actual substance. Paracetamol, lidocaine and procaine are also sometimes added to enhance the effect of the heroin or to relieve pain during injection. And the purity of street grade heroin varies very substantially and quite concerningly it appears that heroin is sometimes now being cut with synthetic opiates such as fentanyl. And when it comes to methods of use for heroin. There's lots of different ways that people take heroin. Some will probably be more familiar than others. One of the first routes that people often use is, uh, is smoking. Usually that's done on a piece of tinfoil. And this is where the term chasing the dragon comes from. And that's from as the, as the heroin melts, uh, it sort of moves around on the foil, looks a little bit or, or, or reportedly looks a bit like a, uh, a Chinese dragon. Uh, so you're chasing the smoke of the dragon. Another commonly used method is uh, insufflation or snorting. Now this has a slower onset of action and it has less of a rush for the user. Injection, either IV or IM, is going to be probably the most familiar route that people listening to this will, will be aware of. It's also important to be aware that heroin is often injected subcutaneously or intradermally, and that's known as skin popping. Uh, that has all sorts of fairly catastrophic effects on the skin uh, when that's used. Some less common ways which heroin can be ingested, uh, it can be taken orally. Although interestingly, when heroin is taken orally, that results in a complete uh, deacetylation. So actually, when that is metabolized, it will basically just be morphine. So, so taking it orally essentially turns it from heroin into just regular morphine. 
Another method that people use uh, is something called snowballing or speedballing, which is mixing heroin and crack cocaine, usually by injection. Another thing to that I just wanted to mention very briefly is a term which is usually used in reference to cocaine, but to a lesser degree, it is relevant in terms of the use of heroin, and that is something called freebasing. Now, I, I mentioned earlier that um, there's different types of street-grade heroin, and one of the most crudely processed types is known as black tar. Now, that will not dissolve in water. That needs to be um, dissolved in a weak acid. And that is, that's what free basing is. It's, it's separating the free base from the, um, from the other constituents so that it can actually be used. So I only, I only mention it because it's, I think it's useful to have a, a general understanding of the processes that people are going through also so that you have an awareness when you're on scene because, you know, awareness of the scene and things going on around you is, is really important when we go into these sort of incidents. So basically, kids, Alex isn't teaching you how to use heroin. <laughs> no, I, I, I have separate classes for that. <laughs> this, is, this is just my introductory program. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, should we go back to the topic then of uh, the pharmacodynamics? Yeah, so just before just before we do move on to pharmacodynamics, I think one last thing, it's not so much a method of use, but... Uh, it is very uh, important and relevant is just an awareness of body packing. So this is people who are, generally speaking, moving larger quantities of uh, illicit substances around. Obviously, they sometimes swallow them, sometimes stuff them into body cavities, and those can rupture. And that can result in an, I won't necessarily say always fatal, but often fatal dose, because the amount that is ingested when one of these packages ruptures is is gigantic. It's, it's often stronger, isn't it? Because you, you said how heroin is, is cut with various other things in order to create more volume from the same amount of stuff. Well, you want the opposite when you're trying to smuggle it somewhere and body packing, it will be it will be pre the cutting and, and the thinning out. So yeah, the concentration of whatever they've got is going to be is going to be stronger as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, uh, my understanding is that cutting is something that is usually done at a sort of dealer level, at a kind of more street level, rather than by the people who are actually manufacturing for, for that exact reason, Josh. Yeah, that's really, um, really relevant point. So, pharmacodynamics then. Um, all recreational opiate drugs are metabolized into morphine in the body. But heroin is a bit unusual in that it's rapidly metabolized by esterase enzymes into two different psychoactive metabolites. So it is metabolized into morphine, but also something called 6-monoacetylmorphine or 6-MAM or 6-MAM, however you want to say it. That's relevant because 6-MAM acts as a pro-drug molecule. So whilst it has no direct effect itself, and that is uh, for, for any chemistry nerds out there, that is to do with the shape of the acetyl groups, which prevent it from binding to opiate receptors. Uh, but the pro-drug molecule is a lipophilic transporter for the delivery of morphine, which that morphine then binds primarily to mu opiate receptors in the brain. So Whilst morphine is able to um, is able to cross the blood-brain barrier, it doesn't have the assistance of 6MAM, which essentially acts as a little taxi service, uh, just, just getting it there a little bit faster. So because of this, because of the presence of, of 6MAM, the pharmacological effects of heroin are essentially identical to those of morphine. However, the onset is much faster and it has a much shorter half-life of around 30 to 60 minutes. The effects of heroin when it's taken produce an initial euphoric high. And one of the reasons that heroin is so addictive is that on the initial use, the very first time someone takes heroin, they will have a release of dopamine, which has been building up in their brain essentially through their whole life. And it's all released at once and it creates a, a real euphoric high and a feeling of relaxation and the cessation of pain. Now, once that dopamine store has been released, it will build up, but very slowly. And people are always 
chasing that initial feeling. They say that subsequent doses are never quite as good as the first time. And, and, and that's for that reason. And that is one of the things that leads this drug to being so addictive. One of the other, one of the main dangers of heroin use is that the dosage and the strength is so unpredictable. And that's due to the fact that it is cut with all sorts of different things. Uh, and it's not produced in a standardized way. So it comes in, in a variety of strengths and you never really know what it is that, that you're, that you're taking. And some of the most seriously toxic features, uh, which we might see are respiratory depression, hypercapnia, reduced consciousness, and coma. And this is mediated by mu and kappa opioid receptor agonism at key sites in the central nervous system, including the pre-Butzinger complex, which is a respiratory rhythm generating area in the pons. Also worth noting that some opiates can also cause cardiotoxic effects due to a blockade of sodium or potassium channels. There may also be some milder opiate toxicity signs such as nausea, vomiting, nightmares, anxiety, agitation, dysphoria, depression, paranoia, and hallucinations. And there may also be, alongside that sedation, there may also be hypertension, bradycardia, and hypothermia. And ultimately, the real risk here with all of those, all of those things that are happening, but particularly the respiratory depression and the reduced consciousness is a loss of the protective mechanisms that keep us alive uh, when we are asleep or, or when we are in states of reduced consciousness. And when that happens, there is obviously a risk that the person is going to go into cardiac arrest. One of the things that we wanted to talk about was how we're going to manage those patients who have taken heroin, had an overdose and, um, and have gone into cardiac arrest. So I'll take over from there. As Alex just quite rightly pointed out, the point which we see our patients is going to be somewhere in this process where either our CNS or respiratory depression has set in. This is going to lead to hypoxia um, and eventually that's going to lead to respiratory arrest and finally a cardiac arrest if we don't correct it. When we do have a patient in cardiac arrest, the most likely initial rhythm uh, encountered will be um, a PEA moving quite quickly into an asystole. Again, that's second to the hypoxia. However, we do occasionally, due to the myocardial ischemia and myocardial effects, as, as Alex just mentioned, sometimes find VF, but this is quite a lot rarer. So most likely you'll come across PEA if we get there quick enough or an asystolic arrest. Now, there's often confusion when managing um, patients in cardiac arrest as to the reversible cause. So we talk about our H's and T's. So in this case, it's going to be hypoxia and toxins. And I've had quite a lot of students ask me in the past, and it was something I wondered uh, years ago as well, is, well, do you give the naloxone first because you are correcting uh, the toxin, which is causing all these symptoms, or do you correct the hypoxia? So, and this is a really good place to start our clinical management. The absolute priority has to be managing the hypoxia because that is what has caused uh, this cardiac arrest. It is that respiratory depression leading to a respiratory arrest. So we need to correct that first. So in order to achieve this, we need to concentrate on good bag mass ventilation to start with. We need to be cautious of overzealous ventilation because this is going to cause gastric insufflation. We've already mentioned that opiates are highly emetic. And when we do eventually administer naloxone, we know that one of the redrawal effects of heroin can be further induced vomiting. So we want to try and minimise the risk of this vomiting and aspiration. So a quick question then, Simon. Obviously, I know we're talking about the management of cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest um, specifically, but in terms of what you were saying about prioritising airway and breathing management before the administration of any antidote, do you think that's the same in kind of peri-arrest patients? So someone who you've you've arrived think this is probably a heroin overdose. They haven't quite got to the stage of going into cardiac arrest. So they're sort of peri-arrest, you know, and on a, on a sort of downward trajectory. Would you, would you say that that's the same sort of management priority? Yeah, definitely. So 
you know, whether they are in a kind of respiratory depressed state, a CNS depressed state, um, or respiratory arrest or cardiac arrest, the, the priority first has to be to manage that hypoxia. So it is always going to be airway and breathing first. So yeah, it's a great question. And, and yeah, whatever stage you're at, prioritize managing the hypoxia. So to do that, we obviously need to administer high flow oxygen. We just said you can do that with bag mask ventilation in the early stages. And we're obviously going to do that with high flow oxygen. We're going to do basic airway positioning and adjuncts if they're needed. But in cases of severe overdose with prolonged downtime or cardiac or respiratory arrest, we might want to consider insertion of a superglottic airway. Or if skilled hands are there, then maybe even intubation, especially if it's going to be a prolonged resuscitation attempt where the airway will be at risk. So I've been interested recently to watch a discussion on Twitter about hypoglycemia causing cardiac arrest and the fact that, you know, we probably shouldn't be giving glucose intra arrest to to manage that because it's not a reversible cause. And I've heard people mention the same thing about giving naloxone intra arrest. So just before I kind of um, put, well, the questionable evidence up, what are both of your thoughts on giving uh, naloxone intra-arrest? Is it something you do or do you wait for your ROS to give it? What do you do in your practice? Uh, yeah, I, I give it intra-arrest. I'm not entirely certain what the evidence base says for that. Obviously, the reason that they're in cardiac arrest is because they've had a massive hypoxic insult and there's probably uh, and, and there's potentially a hypotensive contribution to that, causing cardiovascular collapse or at least potentiating it further so obviously the 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 majority of reversal comes from all that good airway management and, and reversing hypoxia as you've just so d- as you've just described so well i guess in in my thoughts there's there's certainly no harm to giving it in tra arrest and there's also probably an element there that i'm thinking if 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 an opiate toxicity or an opiate toxidrome is the contributing factor to that patient going into cardiac arrest questions would certainly be asked afterwards if if there were significant delays or, or didn't give the uh, the naloxone so um yeah i would would give it intra arrest i i feel a little bit like we're being led up the garden path here and we're going to have the the rug pulled out from under us with uh, whatever simon's about to pull out the bag <laughs> but my um my personal thought, he's already said the evidence is questionable mate so we can just uh, yeah just but he, did, he didn't say he didn't say in which way it was questionable <laughs> uh, no my my personal practice in the past has been that yes i would give it uh intra arrest but on the with the caveat that it does not detract from any other sort of aspect of cardiac arrest management we have to know that yeah you're you're both right so there's very low level evidence some of its animal studies and there's nothing high quality to support the or, well support or refute the administration of loxone intra cardiac arrest but the UK Recess Council and the European Resuscitation Council, who base obviously their guidelines on ILCOR recommendations, and they basically say that due to a lack of evidence, the current expert thinking is that uh, naloxone should be administered intra arrest, but only, and this is the caveat, only after hypoxia has been corrected with airway, breathing control, and good quality ALS is being performed. And administration of loxone should not compromise any of these components. So, yeah, I think we've kind of hit the nail on the head there. So you, you can give it. So what, you, what you're saying, Tutti, is that our management for these patients isn't, you know, arrive, look, listen and feel around in the bag for the Narcan. We should. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. And again, that's supported by JR Kalk, who's um, released a 2020 position statement on this topic that basically advocates giving it during arrest, but after the correction of hypoxia. So I think you've just hit the nail on the head, Josh. Don't rock up at scene with your patient who is in respiratory or cardiac arrest, who is cyanosed and not ventilating for themselves, and go straight for your drug bag. Get your bag and mask out, get your oxygen out, correct your airway, correct your breathing. If they're in cardiac arrest, start your CPR, get your defibrillator attached, start your good, at least basic life support, and then you can start to look at giving naloxone as an antidote. So hopefully that one will settle that. 
this kind of brings us nicely on. So if we are resuscitating a patient, what about stopping resuscitation? So this is kind of a really tricky topic. So if we've started a resus, it can be quite challenging clinical decision-making. And I think what we have to keep in mind is that successful and favourable outcomes have been known after prolonged periods of downtime when there's been high-quality resuscitation from opiate overdoses. We should probably continue for at least an hour. That being said, there's been several well-documented case studies of people having downtimes of several hours. It may be appropriate to continue these um, situations on for quite some time. So I would therefore suggest that if you've started a resuscitation and you haven't been able to achieve a rosket scene, if your service does have mechanical CPR, it might be a, a great time to use this and load the patient so that you can do effective ongoing CPR during transport to the emergency department and convey your patient. If you can and you do need to start thinking about a decision to stop, this should probably be made in consultation with the senior clinician and that rationale documented well. So be that a HEMS crew or an ED consultant or you know a clinical advice line, a senior clinician in your trust, whoever you can call but I do think that, that that needs to be a decision that's made with kind of more than one person and, and, and a senior clinician involved. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that this is one of those situations, particularly intravenous drug users, we have to be very, very aware of our own biases. And it's a, it's a big thing for me uh, in my career and the experiences that I've had that I think it's really important that we remember that these are people. Uh, they're not defined solely by their drug use. And, um, you know, if there is a chance of their survival, then we're not in a position to judge them. That's that's not why we're there. And we're not there to make that decision based on our interpretation of their lifestyle. So yeah, I, I agree completely. I think if go into this with a resuscitationist mindset it's a really valuable point to add actually alex so thanks for saying that because if we are going to be doing these prolonged resuscitations this is going to be resource heavy unfortunately have heard poor attitudes from ambulance clinicians about whether certain people deserve this and that's not acceptable as you quite rightly said these patients are very much deserving of our resources, very much deserving of our time, and we should be treating them like any other patient. And if there is a potential for a good outcome, we should be throwing those resources at them. They're, they're vulnerable people at the end of the day, aren't they? No, no, no one wakes up saying, oh, do you know what I really want to do is become a heroin addict. They've had often huge amounts of uh, abuse um potentially when they're when they're children and, and really difficult lives and and often concurrent mental health problems as well which is uh, all culminated in the in the reason that they've started taking heroin so uh yeah absolutely we need to treat these as vulnerable people when that and that's easy to say sometimes when we're not on the receiving end of of perhaps some some abuse and some grumpiness um to to put it mildly from uh, either somebody that has just woken up and is uh, acutely withdrawing from heroin or we've potentially quote unquote ruined their high uh, and are also probably have an element of a hypoxic brain all culminating in in us receiving sometimes some quite nasty verbal abuse if if not more and that itself you know I'm not being an apologist that itself isn't appropriate either but yeah we we definitely need to bear in mind that these are vulnerable individuals uh, and as you say people at the end of the day uh, and just one other point is just bear in mind on the on the topic of discontinuing Simon just bear in mind that this could be a polypharmacy overdose as well so quite a lot of heroin addicts will will be taking other illicit drugs as well. So crack is very common. If they take heroin, quite a lot of them take crack cane as, as well as what were legal highs, things like spice and, and all of that. So it could be a polypharmacy overdose to further complicate matters. So on the subject of intravenous drug user lifestyle, I suppose, one of the uh, very prevalent issues is gaining access because obviously through intravenous drug use, they do get calcified veins and that can sometimes make routes of access very different so simon what what's your kind of preferred route of access in terms of administering naloxone 
ultrasound guided IV access. Can I go for that one? You can. I can't. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good point because you know, obviously, yeah, um, pre-hospital, I don't carry my ultrasound machine on wheels around. With that's me. Li- that's a um, lie. He carries it everywhere. With it. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah, so these patients can be challenging to get intravenous access on. And it's not always appropriate. It kind of depends on the situation. If in cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest, it might be appropriate to gain IV access or even IO access if you're really struggling. But obviously, if we're just at that respiratory depression phase or peri-respiratory arrest phase, other routes might be more favorable. So as well as IV and IO, we've obviously got uh, intramuscular And we've also got intranasal or IN administration. IN naloxone has quite a mixed evidence base. And there's a good 2022 randomized controlled trial by Skolberg et al. that looked at uh, 0.8 milligrams of IM naloxone versus 1.4 milligrams of intranasal naloxone. And their outcomes were primarily to see which route returned patients to a breathing rate of over 10 a minute the quickest and also a secondary outcomes of what side effects they had. The study identified that intranasal naloxone was inferior to intramuscular naloxone in both speed of recovery and the need for further administration of naloxone later down the line. Despite that, intranasal naloxone was shown to be effective, just not as effective as intramuscular. Interestingly, intranasal, however, did show less withdrawal and side effects in patients recovering compared to the IM route. And also, theoretically, it's safer for the rescuer due to the lack of needing to use a needle and sharp safety. Yeah, we talked about this um, prior to starting recording, didn't we? And I, I find that a lot of the time, people who are in this situation will have multiple layers of clothing on and sometimes it is simply a logistical challenge to get to a point where you can give them uh, intramuscular naloxone so I, I personally think that the intranasal route is quite useful particularly as an initial adjunct yeah we did have a chat about it and obviously me and josh were also talking about because i've never actually just given intranasal i've always given intranasal and then followed up immediately by our intramuscular so I kind of don't really have any anecdotal experience as to whether the intranasal has worked. I've always assumed it worked, but um, obviously I've always followed it up by an IM dose. So um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I haven't got any anecdotal experience I can I can back that up on. What concerns me slightly more surrounding the intranasal naloxone dosing is that JR Calc recommends a 0.5 mil per nostril, so that's 200 micrograms dose, be given up each nostril, so 400 microgram total initial dose, which can then be stepped up and repeated in three-minute intervals to a maximum of 10 mils, so that's four milligrams of naloxone. However, the BNF recommends 1.8 milligrams as the starting dose, which is significantly higher, and this is also supported by the RCT and all the evidence that I can read that intranasal doses must start significantly higher than this. So, it kind of worries me a little bit that actually intranasal naloxone by itself, are we giving the right dose? Because gel count doesn't really specify. I suppose what it does say is that you can give these repeated doses. What's your experiences? You know, like I said, I've never given just intranasal on its own. This is really interesting because I now I sit here and reflect on my practice. I previously thought intranasal naloxone was was really efficacious and but, but that's because in my use I've always been doing an intranasal dose and then following up either with an intramuscular dose or an intravenous dose. So so clearly what's going on in the BNF and what was happening in those RCTs is they were using a, a higher strength of naloxone, weren't they? So I've only ever had a 400 microgram per mil concentration of naloxone but clearly what what they were using was either a you know a 1.8 milligram or maybe two milligram per mil and and the logic makes sense there we have to address adjust the concentration for pretty much any other drug if we're going to give it via an intranasal route you know if we're going to give intranasal ketamine then we need to use high strength ketamine so that you can get a 
strong enough dose into a small enough volume because clearly you, you can't put more than one mil per nostril um, in, in into the patient. Otherwise, you're uh, you're going to be exceeding the relative absorption rate that the nose can tolerate. And, and it, you know, depending on how much liquid you're putting in there, you're at risk of drowning the patient. So, yeah, it's a really interesting point, and it's certainly something that I will um, I will think about. Maybe we need to be making suggestions for higher strength naloxone if uh, if the intranasal route is going to be a viable pre-hospital option. And maybe that's how JR Calc has reduced its intervals to three minutes. Maybe that's how it gets around it because it knows that you'll need to give repeated doses by that route. But obviously it's just trying to discourage people from, as you said, bundling up like five mils up a nose, which isn't going to work. If we don't have that higher concentration in low volume, then I have to question whether we have the right formulary currently to be using this route so yeah i think i mean if anyone knows the answer to that definitely uh, let us know because it's um something i found really interesting when i was doing the research for this obviously the, the big reason why the intranasal route was introduced and was it was pushed is because of the additional safety that it offers rescuers so i think now would probably be a good opportunity to have a little chat about sharp safety and, and bloodborne viruses so as we all know, people who inject drugs are at high risk for bloodborne viruses compared to the standard population. So hep C is the most common bloodborne virus among people who inject drugs. And although the risk is higher, um, the relative risk for hep B and HIV is reasonably low in this group. But it's important to bear in mind that people who inject drugs can be unaware of their infection status. In one study I saw suggested that up to up to 20% or one in five people who, uh, who inject drugs are unaware of their infection status. And sharing drug paraphernalia remains a common practice amongst the IVDU community. I think that's a, a point to really bear in mind. So a lot of people talk about sharing needles and, and these people might think, you know, m might be quite clear, no, they don't share needles, but the infection risk remains from sharing drug paraphernalia. So if they're sharing the same syringes um, or, or reusing spoons or something to redraw up the medicine, j just because they're not sharing the same needle, the uh, increased infection risk remains. So in these patients, we really need to take extra care with sharp safety. Obviously, the intranasal route has the benefit of not introducing sharps and not piercing the skin. But really, as we've already said, we're going to be giving the naloxone after we've got a, a level of control of the situation. So after we've started resuscitating them, after we've got control of their airway and, and are ventilating them. So there's no need, there's no reason for us to be rushing around trying to administer this drug super quickly. We've got time to take this extra care. So we need to be practicing excellent sharp safety with these patients, announcing to the team when sharps are out and announcing to the team when sharps have been put away and safely put into uh, straight into a sharps box to minimize any risk of, of accidental sharps injury. And we also need to bear in mind that it's, it isn't just sharps injury that is a risk to us as rescuers. There's a splash risk as well. So if people get fluids in, in their eyes or onto the skin, that can be a, a risk to us for, for bloodborne viruses as well. So um, we just need to bear that in mind. If we're having to do heavy sectioning of airways and things, we'll, we'll probably want to be putting goggles on and, and, and appropriate PPE protecting ourselves. If you do get a sharps injury, then uh, remove yourself from the situation as best you can. Encourage the wound to bleed, ideally by holding it under running water and wash the wound with uh, with plenty of soap we don't want to be scrubbing it or we don't want to be sucking on the wound just encourage it to to bleed with some gentle pressure and give it a good wash and then cover it with a waterproof plaster or something after that's happened when it's an appropriate time we need to be contacting our occupational health probably through a datix as we may require bloods and these are mostly done by the local hospital so alex i imagine you as the as doing the duty officer or operations officer role may have a bit more to to do with supporting crews if they get a sharps injury yeah i don't think i necessarily have more to do or, or anything more really to add other than yeah do you do you contact your sort of operational 
structure, uh, let them know that it's happened because obviously this is something which we don't want to be coming back in three, four days and uh, trying to do the occupational health bloods because ideally the bloods need to be taken from the patient as well as the person who has received the, um, the contamination or potential contamination injury. There is all sorts of uh, follow-up and things that will be part of your organisational procedures. So follow the processes. Um, please don't leave it for, for several days. Just adding my perspective from uh, an ED side, obviously if you're bringing this patient in or even if you're you're not for whatever reason, you know you can come to your local emergency department. We've got quite robust guidelines, um, which I have to read through every time because they're quite extensive and quite complicated on post-exposure prophylaxis. So we can take blood and, you know, obviously book you in as a patient, take your blood and then um, work you up from a Sharps injury perspective. And if necessary, we do store post-exposure prophylaxis medications and can obviously prescribe them. So if there's high risk, which obviously these situations are likely to be, then yeah, just you know, use your local EDs as well when you bring a patient in. We can we can help them up. Excellent. So we've done a lot of talking about naloxone, haven't we? We we're now at the point where we're about to give it in and we're about to administer. But what actually is it, Alex? Do you want to talk to us about naloxone? So naloxone hydrochloride is a synthetic N-allyl derivative of oxymorphone. Uh, it is used widely by medical professionals and in the community through drug safety outreach programs. And that is a really important development uh, that has definitely saved lives both in the UK and internationally. Naloxone is essentially a pure opiate receptor antagonist. It competitively inhibits mu opiate receptors and prevents heroin metabolites from binding to them, thereby reversing the effects. So even though the metabolites of heroin are, or, or specifically the morphine metabolite of heroin is bound to those mu opiate receptors, the naloxone comes in competitively uh, boots off the morphine and takes over that receptor and, and reduce uh, reverses the effect. Now, one thing that is often talked about is the elimination half-life of naloxone. And actually, in researching this, I found that whilst that is a valid concern, we probably slightly misunderstand exactly what the problem is. And I, and I don't really know how important that is. Ultimately, it's just something that we need to be aware of. But naloxone has an elimination half-life of around 30 to 60 minutes. So for anyone who's not familiar with that term, elimination half-life is the time from the total dose that's in the body to be reduced by half, hence the name half-life. And, and in the case of naloxone, that takes around 30 to 60 minutes, which is pretty much the same as morphine. The relevant concern here, though, is the kinetics of opiate dissociation from those receptor sites. And in animal studies versus morphine, not heroin specifically, but versus morphine, naloxone levels in the brain uh, five minutes after an IV bolus are higher than those in blood serum, but decline quickly following this initial peak. Whilst in contrast to that, brain levels of morphine decline very slowly, remaining near the initial concentration for up to an hour, despite a rapid decline in serum morphine concentration. And this could account for the, the very short duration of morphine antagonism by naloxone. So although they have a similar half-life, it is quite widely known that the, the duration of action of that antagonism is much shorter. And, and that may be the explanation for it, although we don't really know. But despite that overall similarity in serum pharmacokinetics, the effects of the morphine are more delayed in onset, but are outlast those of the naloxone, uh, likely due to the lower lipid solubility of morphine and its retention in the brain. And that is largely going to be true of, uh, of heroin or diamorphine. So as I said before, diamorphine is broken down into two different metabolites and because of that is up it, the uptake in the brain is much faster and it does have a shorter half-life so whilst the risk of resedation following naloxone is slightly lessened compared to morphine it is still a definite problem um 
and certain studies. Uh, there's a, stu- a, a fairly old study now uh, by Boom et al. in 2012, which showed that a dose of 13 micrograms per kilogram, which is approximately one milligram in an 80 kilogram individual, uh, a dose of that strength of naloxone will occupy 50% of the available receptor sites in the human brain. But as naloxone is a competitive antagonist at the mu opioid receptor, the dose may be insufficient to reverse toxicity due to very large overdoses or compounds with a higher affinity for the mu opioid receptor, in which case very few opioid binding sites remain unoccupied. And that's particularly relevant when we come to talk about heroin, which is cut particularly with fentanyl or other strong opiates. In those cases or where that suspicion exists, there has to be a recognition of the fact that naloxone, particularly the initial doses, may be significantly less effective than we are expecting or hoping that it will be. There there are reports that combining IV and IM and presumably intranasal administration of naloxone extends the duration of the effect, but the larger doses administered may precipitate opiate withdrawal symptoms and may not confer a survival benefit following opiate overdose. <laughs> that was a very wordy way of going through it, wasn't it? But but it it kind of makes it kind of makes sense that we think that a mixed administration may be more effective, but there's not really any evidence to support that and to support the fact that it may or may not have a survival benefit. Um, But one thing that is talked about in literature is that administration of naloxone, particularly in large doses, has been linked in evidence to the development of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. The mechanism of that's not entirely clear, but it may be due to, to, to damage to the, the, the lung cells or catecholamine surge induced vasoconstriction. But conversely to that as well, in other evidence, it is shown that, um, NCPE can be an infrequent complication of heroin overdose of its own accord, and it is actually observed in many fatal opiate overdoses, even those which occurred before the widespread use of naloxone. So whilst non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema is a concern if we're thinking of pumping in bucket loads of naloxone, the evidence that links it specifically to that administration is not necessarily uh, one way. There, there, there's evidence for and against. One of the things I've heard people say on the topic of naloxone is that legally we can only give it if the patient's in respiratory arrest or if they are respiratory depressed below 10 breaths per minute. Can you just tell us a little bit about the legal framework of how paramedics can give naloxone and, and when we should and shouldn't be giving it? Yeah, I think that comes from JR Count, doesn't it? Some some of the specific wording there. But in terms of the legal aspect of administration, uh, it's covered by Schedule 19 of the Human Medicines Regulations for administration, and this is a quote, in an emergency. It doesn't specify that the patient has to be in respiratory arrest or have a certain level of respiratory depression. It just says in an emergency. So it doesn't require a prescription, uh, a specific group direction, uh, sorry, a patient specific direction or a patient group directive uh, in the context of an emergency. Uh, And actually under regulations that came into force in October 2015, people who work in or for drug treatment services can supply naloxone to others if it's being made available to save a life in an emergency. So I've certainly seen in my own practice that uh, we, we've turned up to a patient who has a reported uh, opiate overdose and someone from a local service has turned up and has administered some naloxone, usually intranasally, but they can also give it to intravenous drug users to carry themselves not obviously not not to administer to themselves in the sense of um you know like an EpiPen, but if if they are in the company of someone who who does uh, suffer a significant overdose that sometimes they can carry that and it's also worth bearing in mind on that note that sometimes um people will administer the naloxone and leave the scene because they don't want to be present if if the police uh, or, or other law enforcement agencies turn up um so you know hopefully you'd like to think that they would leave some indication that they had given some naloxone perhaps leave the um leave the container or something there but uh, yeah so 
It's something that you may see out in the community um, and it is perfectly legal for any person who is competent to uh, to administer it to 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 both possess and to and to administer anecdotally listening to all that pharmacology i think has bigger cns depressant effects than the heroin <laughs> thank you <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment <laughs> right so that that clears that up uh I guess the next dilemma and, and discussion that uh, we should probably clear up for people is what is our end point? So how much naloxone do we give and uh, how do we know when we stop giving it? Because it says in most guidelines, as well as in JR Calc, that you should titrate to effect. What effect are we looking for? Are we looking for these people to sit up and and uh, say thank you for ruining my heroin experience and I want to leave now? Uh, what are we doing? What do you guys do? Difficult. So I think JR Calc's argument has always been about um, the potential for aggressive behaviour when the patient comes round. So you should kind of titrate it to so that they are no respiratory depressant effects, but they're still very, very groggy. And I can understand their thought process on that, but my several issues with this are anecdotally, and and I've worked in an area with a high prevalence of heroin users. So, you know, earlier in my career, I went to a lot of overdoses. I've never found most of the time that much aggression, Sometimes people are quite grateful or, you know, yes, sometimes they get a bit cross that you've ruined their fix, but I've never really found physical aggression is so much, but that's just my anecdote experience. Obviously, I, you know, I'm sure that there is. I also have the issue of two things. One, if you're going to leave someone with a semi-reduced conscious level, that's kind of leaving them sedated, at which case there is a potential airway risk that you are kind of playing with on the way to hospital. And also, if you do reverse it, you could get someone back to a point where they ethically can consent or decline treatment, and you're kind of inhibiting them from going that. On the flip side, full reversal can induce withdrawal. And I know um, from a from a, a case um, quite junior in my career, I went to someone who... Um, was just starting to have some respiratory depression. They they were quite drowsy and just starting to have some respiratory depression. But they they kind of weren't in extremists yet. And I I did gain some IV access and I unfortunately smashed them full of IV naloxone and put them into withdrawal. And to be honest, the effects of that worried me more than how they were before. And I learned a lesson that day. It was quite a good reflection because the arrhythmias pvcs and that they were kicking off on the cardiac monitor plus the vomiting distress of the patient sweating and all the things that the patient was experiencing i kind of felt quite bad that i'd I'd done it and i think that was just inexperience really so i can see the benefit of bringing people around slowly and diluting your naloxone so i don't think there's necessarily a right answer here i think it's situation specific and maybe dependent upon uh, what you see and assess at the time so i disagree that there is no right answer i i think that i i don't disagree with with what you have to say and yes obviously everything that we do is kind of patient and person specific uh, to a degree However, I think if your practice is to deliberately keep this patient obtunded, then, well, (laughs) there's lots of reasons that that is not really the right thing to do. Uh, First of all, the patient is is vulnerable and they are in a position of, uh, we, we are in a position of making best interest decisions. And I don't think that leaving anyone's airway at risk is is in their best interest. And I also think if you look at the four principles of um, of medical ethics, autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence, and justice, I think you fall down on a, on a lot of those. If, if you're deliberately, you have the ability to reverse the problem and you are choosing to only partly do that, I, I think you are 
compromising the patient's autonomy. You're not really being that beneficent and uh, okay, probably probably not maleficence and and justice, but but certainly on those two ethical points, I think you run into some difficulty. I can definitely see what you're saying around keeping the patients uh, trying to reduce the chance that the patient is going to be put into precipitated withdrawal. However, I think that can be mediated by careful administration of naloxone rather than simply opening up an IV and pouring a bucket of naloxone in. I think if we need to, uh, the same with the same with any medicine that we're giving, we need to give the appropriate dose for the patient. And I also have to agree with with what you started off with, Simon, uh, around uh, aggression. Now, I have seen people become irritated, but I have never in my career, and again, I have been to a lot of opiate overdoses, I have never had a patient come round and immediately become physically aggressive. And I have a suspicion that that comes less from the naloxone and probably more from hypoxia uh, and that is just another reason that it is so vitally important to focus on reversing that hypoxia as well as administering an antidote so i think actually we're on the same page there in the fact that i don't really agree with when jr calc says stop respiratory depressant effects but keep a patient groggy I, I, I'm kind of with you, actually, Alex. I think that we can push it a little bit further than that and we can get to the point where, you know, we're not inducing withdrawal, which would be cruel and, you know, as I said, it, the experience of it is, is horrible to see and I'm sure it's horrible for the patient to experience. But actually getting them to a point where they, you know, are in a position where they are protecting their own airway and they are kind of compass mentis again. And, and have capacity to kind of make decisions and things. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think we are on the same page. I, I don't agree with what JR Calc suggests where you basically keep them nigh on unresponsive, but just breathing. I think that's a little bit dangerous ground. Obviously, that's both of our opinions. Josh, what, what are you, what are your thoughts? It's, it's, I'm sure very boring to listen to when we all agree on something, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I do, I do agree with both of your sentiments. I would I would suggest that it just needs to be heavily tailored for the situation. So I, I can see that there probably are situations where probably from a crew safety perspective and, and patient's best interest perspective that if you know this patient well and they are known to be quite violent after you have woken them up several times, then it might not be unreasonable to to go for the more sedate end of the spectrum. But I think having that as a press all for all heroin overdoses is also probably wrong. Um, we just need to be a bit nuanced and, and tailored. Yes, we, we don't want to keep all people deeply attended uh, because ethically that's probably the wrong thing to do. But equally, we need to be careful not to put them into withdrawal because again, that, that is probably the wrong thing to do and also not in their best interest. Quite like the little flow chart that EM Crit has. So they get you to ask yourself a number of questions about how the patient is, how unwell they are to start with, uh, and sort of tailor your uh, your response to that. So it, it asks you to consider whether or not the patient is opiate naive, in which case maybe it's a, an in, intentional overdose or something like that. They, they ask you to consider whether or not the patient is opiate naive, in which case withdrawal isn't a significant uh, thing that we need to need, need to consider. Uh, or if they aren't opiate naive, if they're a heavy uh, opiate user, heroin abuser, it splits into several pathways. Are they doing okay? Are they the too sleepy pathway? Are they the dying pathway? And it, it asks you to consider uh, a number of things on, on how to titrate your, uh, your, your naloxone administration. So... I guess that's a lot of waffle just to say that I I broadly agree with you guys uh, and it is situation specific. So would you guys agree with me then if we summarise that as it's situation dependent, if there is a known safety risk, it can be considered, but actually most, from our experiences at least, um, most heroin addicts aren't violent on coming round. We need to balance a best interest decision versus the ability to bring a patient round enough to consent um, or refuse treatment. Uh, we want to kind of 
be careful about keeping patients too abducted from an airway risk, but also not causing a withdrawal. And we're going to do this, obviously, by careful titration of our naloxone administration. Yeah, all the times that I'm administering naloxone, especially if I'm giving it intravenously, uh, I'm, I'm drawing it up to make 10 mils. Uh, so I'll draw 800 micrograms up into a 10 mil syringe, uh, dilute that with sodium chloride up to 10 mils, and going to be slowly, uh, as the guidelines say, titrating to effect. So Simon, in terms of in-hospital management where do you what what do you kind of do from from an in-hospital point of view you know say say that say that we do feel that conveyance is the most appropriate and the patient agrees to come with us where would you kind of go from an in-hospital point of view so obviously knowing that uh, naloxone can wear off quicker than opiates such as heroin but also when we don't know what the heroin might be mixed with and it could be mixed with other opiates as you alluded to earlier we may need um, to think about a naloxone infusion, so especially in really large overdoses, to prevent the patient going going into a respiratory depression again. So this is a kind of balancing act between managing the respiratory depression, but also um, not uh, precipitating acute withdrawal. We normally start with a dose that is around two-thirds of the initial cumulative dose that restored the patient to a kind of more hemodynamically acceptable level. And we can then titrate this up and down dependent upon if the patient is showing signs of deteriorating respiratory function or acute withdrawal. Once we've managed the acute episode, then we can consider how long we need to keep the patient in hospital for. Toxpace recommends that that is six hours uh, from when we have no symptoms of respiratory or CNS depression and when a naloxone infusion is no longer needed, uh, we can start to look at discharging patients. In that time, uh, we might want to consider offering the patient referral to drug and alcohol services. Uh, in my trust, we've got really good uh, clinical nurse specialists that's, that you know kind of work with patients from this um, and they can obviously follow these patients up and give them support if it's something that the patient's interested in that's predominantly most of the in-hospital management however i think one thing we need to think about from a pre-hospital perspective is are we actually going to be able to get the patient there because i know that um quite a, a large volume of my patients pre-hospitally do not end up in the emergency department alex you have been looking at refusal of transport and absconding patients and how we can safety net these patient yeah so quite often the patient when when they've woken up will decline conveyance for for lots of different reasons we obviously need to think about how we're going to safeguard that patient from essentially walking down the road and then in, in half an hour's time to an hour's time from from becoming resedated and it's a tricky one because no matter how much naloxone we pump into the patient it's going to have the risk is still going to be present. My personal practice is to try and get several IM doses uh, on board the patient, at least one, if nothing else. But yeah, I, I try and get, you know, sort of between three and four doses uh, administered IM before the patient leaves the scene. Another, another important point uh, I think to make is if you are giving something intravenously it's probably safest if the patient doesn't leave with an IV cannula still in situ because if that cannula remains in that is obviously a direct route for pathogens directly into the bloodstream it's very convenient to go and top up the heroin <laughs> it is it's, it's extremely convenient and actually I have definitely had patients who have, have deliberately tried to leave scene with IV cannula still in situ simply because they are uh, you know because IV drug users sometimes struggle just as much as we do uh, to, to gain IV access on themselves. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that is something to, to very much be aware of. If, if you are going to gain IV access on, a, on an intravenous drug user, um, remember how many cannulas you've put in and try your best not to let them uh, leave scene with one still in situ. Where possible, send them away with someone else, w whether that's one of their friends or someone from a from a drug service who may be on scene and don't forget to uh, document any refusal of of conveyance or refusal of treatment and if the patient doesn't sign that then obviously you need to get that 
witnessed preferably by somebody else on scene a, a police officer a drug service worker a member of the public rather than yourself and your crewmate although a witness although a crewmate as a witness is is perfectly acceptable it, it's perhaps more more thorough and rounded to to use someone who isn't employed in the same role as yourself the only other thing that i would uh, add on the back of that alex is don't forget to document how you came to the conclusion that the patient had the capacity to make decisions absolutely i'm going to jump on this is this is relevant to every single area of pre-hospital practice for everyone regardless of role or base registration and doesn't just apply to this subject but documentation is vital if if anything happens and someone like myself ends up looking at what's happened and what the outcome has been if you have been thorough in your documentation of your rationale and the actions that you've taken and the things that you found and did not find, there will be fewer things that we have to ask you and less of a case to answer. So if you don't document what you're doing properly and why you're doing it, don't be surprised if when something goes wrong, there's lots of questions that you have to answer. Okay, so let's summarise. Heroin is a potent form of dimorphine. We've discussed how because of its acetyl groups, it has a greater ability to cross the blood-brain barrier and thus is more potent than morphine. Patients who've overdosed will present with reduced levels of consciousness, respiratory depression and be at risk of losing their airway. Ultimately, these patients can aspirate or become hypoxic to the point of cardiac arrest. Like any other patient, therefore, we should follow a structured format in assessing and managing these patients, the basis of which is good airway management and ventilation to reverse hypoxia. We should stabilise this situation before we start looking to reverse things with naloxone. We've discussed the routes of administration and, crucially, how we need to slow down and ensure good sharp safety technique to protect ourselves and our patients. We've also talked about how naloxone's reduced affinity for opioid receptors compared with opiates will mean that our patients require repeated doses to avoid relapse. We've discussed our endpoints with naloxone and how this needs to be nuanced for the situation in front of us. There isn't a one-size-fits-all when it comes to this treatment. And we need to consider the many complex factors that feed into the situation that we're in. Finally, we've discussed how we can safety net these patients after reversal of the overdose, ideally by transporting to hospital for naloxone infusions, or if the patient's refused, with loading doses of naloxone and discharge to the care of a responsible person. If you're not already, make sure that you follow and subscribe to us in whatever app you're listening to us on right now so that you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're out. If you're new to us, make sure you've checked out our back catalogue of episodes. And as always, there are links and references that we've used to compile this podcast on our website, generalbroadcast.org.uk. That's it for this one. We'll see you next month.